Lord, that you would enable me, Father, in this teaching. God, that you would enable us all in the hearing. And Father, you would bless us. But Lord, prepare us. And I just pray, Father, as a work of the Spirit is to give us wisdom and understanding, that we truly would have wisdom and understanding for every good work. And so, Lord, just bless Calvary Chapel, Ontario, as we gather together under your word, as we seek to do your will, as, Lord, we have a desire to glorify you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to your neighbor and tell him, Happy Sunday. Happy Sunday. Um, I just asked Oscar, and he says he couldn't play the video sound. So, uh, if you tell him. I'll delay until you get back there. Good morning. Go ahead and turn your Bibles to 1 John chapter 3. We'll be picking up at verse 19. And as always, if you arrived here today without a Bible, we'd like for you to follow along and there should be one in front of you underneath the seat. But if there isn't, if you'll raise your hands, the ushers will bring one to you. Does anybody need a Bible? Is everybody good? This has never happened before. Um, Last week we had our baptism and uh, we had a few people baptized, and as I was saying, it was uh, not just baptism, it was also church picnic time, and we have some uh, pictures and some video of it that we would like to show you. So, with no further ado... It is not a silent movie. There it goes. This is my revelation. Christ Jesus crucified. Salvation through I'm Allison and I'm born again. Allison, once again, because you have proclaimed Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
Lord and Savior, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It was a fun time of just being part of the family of Calvary Chapel, Ontario. If you've yet to be baptized, I encourage you to do so. Or next year, just come on out and just to enjoy the time together. It was just a, a blessing. You know, as a pastor, that's probably one of my favorite things of everything I have to do, is just to be part of that special day as people know that they're doing what God has called them to do. Go ahead and stand for the reading of God's Word. First John chapter 3, I'll be starting at verse 19. Actually, I'll start at verse 18. My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do the, those things that are pleasing in his sight. And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. Now he who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. Father, once again, as we see this section of Scripture, Lord, as we look at the fulfillment of your greatest commandments and as we see the necessity of having the confidence that comes from a surety, I pray, Lord, that we would grasp on to all that you would have for us in this final lesson on this particular subject. And so, Father, we just lift up our study to you once again, God, that you would be glorified. But, Lord, that we would be well prepared for every good work, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and be seated. Now, I've used the illustration many times of the cross, and as the cross, what it signifies, signifies so much. But the greatest is, is that God's logo of love. We see that, again, in the horizontal beam, and that we are to love others as we love ourselves. And in the vertical beam, as it goes both ways, that we are to love God, who has first loved us. And so because of the knowledge of these things, we gain a confidence in our Christian lives. But in order to gain that confidence, you must know. You must know there should be nobody here, whether you're saved or you're not saved, there should be nobody here who does not know where they stand with God. I mean, God would convict your heart if you're unsaved. Every time you come into the church, it's going to be an uncomfortable experience. And so if you're not saved, you'll know that you're not saved. 
But if you are saved, God wants you to have a surety. He does not keep you in the dark. Matter of fact, he's brought you into his marvelous light. And John has used that concept or that picture at the beginning of this epistle and that we have come into the light. And what we saw is the light, well, the light is the glory of God. The glory of God signifies the presence of God. And you should all know that you bask, that you live in the presence of Almighty God. And as you come to that knowledge, you'll have a confidence. You'll have a surety that you're all on the same team. I watch football. I watched some football a little bit yesterday. And especially college, they're more rah-rah, if you will, than the pros are. And so at the beginning, they're all running out of the, the tunnel, and they're all excited because they just know the coach has built them up, the band is playing, there's the crowd, they're cheering, fireworks are going off, and they all have the same jersey on. They're on the same team, and we're going to win. Well, the other team thinks that as well, but there's a surety and there's a confidence that comes about just being on that same team, being part of the same family, being part of the family of God. And God wants you to have that confidence as you go out into the world for the purposes which he has called you to. Now, it's important, the foundation of that surety, what have you built that upon? Because the floods are going to come, the winds are going to blow against the house, and you must know that you are built upon the strong foundation that is Jesus Christ. Well, how do I know, Pastor Mike, for sure that I have the surety that I have built my life, my Christian life, upon the right foundation? Well, there'd be many answers if we gave the question, why are you sure of your salvation? For some people, it would be just simply that, well, you know what, I repeated a prayer. It wasn't even a prayer that I prayed from my own heart. Somebody spoke it to me, and I just repeated it. Somebody else may say, well, I followed some sort of denominational formula. Others may say, well, I I read my Bible. Others could say, I go to church. Some may say, I go to church three times a week. Others, it could be, well, I've just kind of always been a Christian. I've heard that one many times. Well, these things all point to the possibility, but God doesn't want you to have the possibility of your salvation. He wants you to have the surety of your salvation. The possibilities, they offer no assurance whatsoever. How important is this? Well, keep in mind, the Apostle John, John's in his 90s. It was very uncommon for somebody to live to their 90s back in that day. And so God has kept the Apostle John for his reasons and his purposes. And so this epistle is one of the final, not the, but one of the final writings that we have from John. And again, John had to know that his days were, well, there had to be coming to an end. And so the things that he writes, I would imagine, would be the things that would be very important. Now, John's been an evangelist. John's been a discipler. He's been involved in the church for, well, I don't know exactly how many years. It could be as many as as 70 years. We don't know how old he was when when he walked with the Lord Jesus Christ, you know, when, when Jesus was on the earth. Could have been young as 20, maybe even younger. Well, so what John's doing is he's reconsidering the things that are, that are important. And I really think that he's seeing that the church, well, the attacks have been coming. And as the attacks have been coming, he's looking at the dynamic across the church. And he sees that there's a lot of people there that possibly aren't saved. And there's quite a few people who would say they're saved, but they're not even sure within their own hearts if they're saved. 
And so he, he's, wanting to, he, he's wanting to close that, that, that door of doubt so that they would know, and as they know, they're on the same team, and we move forward together. They could run out of that tunnel, if you will, with the crowds cheering and the fireworks going off, or angels singing, or whatever it is. But John, we see what's on his heart towards the end of his life. He knows that he does not have much longer, and it's important to him that the church would truly have an assurance. Not only is it important to him, because this word is written, it's inspired by God. And these are things that God wants to make sure are brought into the teachings, the doctrines of the church. And matter of fact, God wants these things brought into the doctrines that are taught today at Calvary Chapel, Ontario, delivered to the church some 2,000, give or take, years ago, but given to the church for the purpose of giving us a confidence so that we would march forward in the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and so, so far, John, through the Spirit, has told us how we can really know that we are born again. So remember, nowhere in the Bible does it say, become a Christian. Jesus very pointedly says, you must be born again. There has to be that change in your life. If there was never a change of life, if you just kind of skated through and believed somewhere along the line you became a Christian, chances are you have not become a Christian. That change should be very profound and very noticeable within your life. Maybe not the minute, second, hour, day, or whatever, but at least that, that time frame when God worked that change in your life. And so you should have that surety. And if you have that surety, well, John's been using two, two points here. He says, if you're truly a Christian, a Christian practices righteousness. A Christian works at a condition that is acceptable to God based upon the Bible. But secondly, a Christian also loves the brethren. And as I've said many times before, you may not like everybody, but you have a responsibility to love everybody. Matter of fact, I believe that those things aren't saying, okay, well, I want to make sure I'm a Christian, so I guess I got to do what the Bible says. And those people at that place that I go to, 1957 Vineyard, I guess I got to put up with them as well. Well, if you have that attitude, then you've got the wrong attitude, and you're probably not born again no matter what. The big part of the idea here is, is that if you're born again, those are going to be a dynamic of your life. You're going to find yourself doing those things. You're going to find yourself with a desire to practice righteousness, with a desire to be honorable before God. And, and you're going to know that you're going to fail. God knows you're going to fail. We all know that you're going to fail, but we've been given grace. And, and that's the purpose for grace is because of human failure. Lord, I want to please you and I want to honor you every day of my being, but I fall so short. But with God, that's okay. Remember what he said with Peter? That's okay feed my sheep. And so we're able to move forward in that knowledge. And then I also realize I've, de I've developed a love for the brethren, a love for the people. Well, I, I was at the convalescent home yesterday, and I was teaching at the convalescent home, and there was more people there than has ever been there. I must be a really good teacher. It's not that. They're dependent upon somebody to roll them in. And for whatever reason, they happen to roll more people in than they usually rolled in, you know, the staff that works there. But it was a good thing. And I told them, you know, some, some of the people can't pay attention. Some of the people may have their chin on their chest, 
but they're taking in everything that is given. You just won't be able to tell by their outward expression because it's really a rehabilitation center. There's a lot of elderly people there, but pretty much everybody there has some sort of physical ailment. But I'm talking to them, and and I just want them to know that the reason I do this is I, I don't get paid to do this, I I don't do this for any other reason, but I told them that I just love you. And it's just like the amazing thing. It perked every one of them, for the most part, up. You know, the person that I've never seen raise their head just kind of looked up. Why? Because it's love that grips our hearts. It's love, that the love of God that changed our soul. It's the love that it is expressed that, well, it's God-ordained. There's just a connection that is there. Just for me to mouth the words to my wife or her to me, it just makes a huge difference in that moment and in that day just to know that somebody loves me. I'd never have asked her that I recalled, tell me you love me, because I didn't need to do that, but she'll say that, and it just means so much. And again, that's God-ordained, and we find ourselves loving the brethren, even the people that are difficult in the church. There are some people that have come to our church, and when they left, there was a little bit of relief. But there's always that heartbreak. I look at it from my perspective, where did I go wrong? Where did I fail in that relationship? Because I look at it from the perspective, everybody that God's given me, I have given me to pastor over, I have responsibility over that person. And I know not everybody's going to be receptive of the ministry. And and as they're rejecting, they're not really rejecting me, they're rejecting God, or they've been called to go to another church. I mean, there's a a variety of ways, but it it breaks your heart. And I'm just thinking, man, that's different because I just blow it off, you know, in my old life. But God works these changes. And really what John's been writing, John's been writing according to the two greatest commandments. What's the greatest commandment? To love God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might. Or live a life that practices righteousness. And then what does he say? Love others as you love yourself. Well, that just speaks for itself and what he's been talking about. Those two proofs of salvation are the two proofs that Jesus offered when he was asked, what are the greatest commandments? And so there's a harmony here. There's a unity here of the scriptures because there always is. Truth will always have a harmony. Truth will always have a unity. John's not going to be bringing something strange up, but this was given to him by Jesus Christ, but this was also spoken by Christ in the Old Testament to all of mankind. And so there's nothing really new here, but there's a reminder here. There's a reminder that we must do it because, again, we have God's divine will and we have our will that works hand in in hand. Our will is always subservient to God's will. God is sovereign. There's no doubt about that. But I can be disobedient. And so these necessary elements that he's, been, he's given to us, I don't know why I'm pointing back there, but he's given us that logo of love, the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, so that we wouldn't forget, that we would always remember, that I would look at the cross and I would be reminded of the day of my salvation, but also I would be reminded of every day of my life and how that day when I came to the foot of that cross, it changed it, it altered it, and it continued to do so. But then also God, through a love that I would have for others, 
desires to use me so that others would come before the foot of the cross and be reminded by the cross of who they are and have that same surety. Even John is not writing something strange and he's not writing something new. It's something that is expressed by all those who were authors within the scriptures. The Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 18, He says, let love be without hypocrisy, speaking of a sincere heart, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love and honor, giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoice in hope, patient in tribulations, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peacefully with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap coals of fire on his head. That's actually a blessing. That's not a, it's not like you're torturing the person. Verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Went a little bit further with that, but it was just so good. It was just so good, and it was just so right. So, just as it is important to know, it's important to know because even with ourselves, we can so easily play the hypocrite. Hypocrite, it literally means to be a two-faced person, to have the face that I put on at church and to have the face that I put on at home. Or maybe I'll put the same face on at home and at church, but to put a different face or act differently, if you will, when I go on the job. No, we are not to be hypocrites. We are to be single-faced, and we are to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's so easy to dwell in the flesh and have a love for self, to give the appearance of righteousness and love, but not actually have it. These things must come from our hearts. And I see it in the people of the church who serve the Lord. I've mentioned it before, but I see it in the people who are excited, who come early and are prepared in order to teach your children. I mean, what benefit are they getting from that? We don't pay them. They do it because they have a heart of love. I was approached by somebody before service who wants to clean the bathrooms. We've been advertising that. We don't pay him, but he has a love for the brethren that he's willing to clean the toilets for the church. And to me, that, that's, a, that's a mighty thing. The people that go to Mercy House and feed the homeless, they have a heart for those people that, that well, it's they, they just, it just whatever reason, things haven't worked out for them. And, 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 you know, as we talk to Mercy House, you know, we, we can so look at the homeless being, well, you know, a lot of them have mental condition, whatever. Well, a lot of these people even have degrees. They even have jobs. But have you noticed how much an apartment costs nowadays? They can't afford it. And a lot of these people, because of student debt and stuff along those lines, they're living in their cars. They're living in shelters or wherever it is that they're able to do. And I see the people that as they prepare and they go out for this purpose of feeding the homeless, and I'm seeing the impact that it's starting to have. And it's having impact upon the people who are coming, but it's also having impact, and this to me is is a pretty amazing thing, it's having impact upon the people who, who work at Mercy House. 
We had a guy came, come here last week because he says, yeah, I just see your people serving all the time, and it's just an amazing thing, so I, I needed to come to this church and see what's going on. And, 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 so, and, and that's not me at all. That's just a group of people who have the heart to do so, and they're expressing love for, well, they don't know who they're expressing love, if they're saved or not saved, but that doesn't matter. They're expressing love for the people they're ministering to, and I guarantee you it's going to have an effect. The Word of God does not come back void, but that also means the effects of the Word of God working through us will not come back void. There's reason and purpose that God has in basically everything that we do as a church. And the reason and purpose that what we do as a church is to get the word into the hearts of the people that they may come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and walk strongly with him. Because the world, the world, we see it before our very eyes. I mean, can you not deny that it's fading away? I mean, it's go, what in the world is wrong with this world today? Well, it's... Fading away. Jesus said that these things were going to happen and these things are going to happen. And guess what? I read to the end of the book, it's going to get a lot worse. It's going to get to the point where God destroys the world. Martin Lloyd-Jones says there are certain laws in the spiritual life and they must be observed. Sooner or later, the truth will insist upon having its place in us. Sooner or later, as the Bible puts it, our sins will find us out however long we may go on apparently living a kind of double life, subscribing intellectually to a body of doctrine but failing in practice. Sooner or later it will come home to us or the reality of our hypocrisy will be revealed. And if nothing else, on that last day, as you stand before Jesus Christ, if you're not born again but you were playing at being born again, Romans chapter 3, verse 19, every mouth will be stopped. You will have absolutely no excuse. You'll be seen for who you truly are, and you will have no excuse before a holy God. And so, why are we harping on this? Kind of given the same subject study the last couple of weeks, you see the importance of it. God thought it important to include it in the Bible. Apostle John thought it important to be part of the last words that he would be writing and God thought it important that we be going through this section of Scripture today. Verse 19, this is King James Version, it just states it a little better. And hereby we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. And this is how we know that we are saved, to paraphrase that verse. Notice he says, hereby. Hereby connects this verse with the preceding thought. In verse 18, he says, My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and truth. And then if you take it on to 19, And this is how we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. See, the person who knows, who truly knows and understands, in this particular case, the word of God, is the person who does. We have been taught all of our lives from birth. And a lot of the things that we have been taught are the things that we do. So basically, looking at the other way, everything we do, we have been taught. I, I, I was talking to somebody a long time ago, the really good guitar player, very impressive. This person had a gifting. And I asked, who taught you? And you go, I'm self-taught. That's not really true. Self-taught? They didn't just sit there and start figuring chords out. They went and they read a book and found out the chords or somebody told them the chords. Now they have a talent that they were able to develop these things, but there is nobody who is self-taught. You don't have absolutely nothing and then all of a sudden start 
doing things or, or gaining knowledge from nothing. Now, you may teach yourself as far as you didn't need another human being, but you went to a book, went on the internet, you developed some sort of source for the things that you know and the things that you have learned. But the things that you know will result in the things that you do or how or who you are. And so the Christian, as he has taught the Word of God, John had said previously that I need no man to teach me. It's not a teaching that comes from man, but it's a teaching that comes from the Holy Spirit. The Spirit as he works through the spiritual gifts of others. And as I learn these things of the Lord, these are the things that I apply and attach to my life, and these are the things that I live, and this is how other people will perceive me. Looking at the Apostle Paul, what does he say? Take off these clothes. You know, these clothes are how you perceive me today. You, you, you see, the, he's got a purple shirt. He's got light pants on. <laughs> when they come up for the last song, if you look, the majority of the worship team, they all have gray on. I don't know if they call each other before service or what. It was just kind of funny when they were standing in my office. There was a few rebels, but most of them had gray on. Um, but, but this is how you're perceived. And, you know, we've got our Sunday go-to-meeting clothes. You wear a little bit better clothes on, on Sunday. You want people to perceive you well. And Paul is saying, take off the old man. Take off the old man with the tattered clothes. Take off that old life. And he's saying, as you take off that old life, just as you would take off the old clothes and put them away, but then put on the new clothes. Put on the new clothes that reflect Jesus Christ to those whom you have, or who you will, come in contact with. And so you will know that you are saved when... You go about your life practicing righteousness or loving God with all of your heart, with all of your soul and all of your might and having a sacrificial love or loving others as you love yourself because you sacrificially love yourself. Think of it. You'll spend pretty much every penny you earn on yourself somehow, some way, food, clothing, housing, cars, and all of that. Hopefully you save a little bit, but nonetheless, you'll spend the majority of your paycheck on yourself. You sacrificially love. You'll, you'll give up certain things in order to work and to get that paycheck. Whatever the comfort may be, you'll sacrificially love you. Probably the biggest pain in my life, the biggest person who's a pain in my life is myself. I'm so demanding of myself. I'm always looking at my personal comfort, what my desires are. And so in order to achieve those things, I'll sacrifice, I'll sacrificially love myself. What Jesus said, love others as you love yourself. That's a huge statement. And it's not just something that's going to happen. It's something that it'll take a lifetime working at. My wife and I, as far as our actions and our words, my wife and I, well, I say my wife and I, you'll have to talk to her, but I'll just dress myself. I had to learn the language. I had to learn the language of male and female, of husband and wife, and what certain things meant. Because when I first came into marriage, I just thought certain things just meant not face value, but apparently a lot of things got hidden value. When my wife calls out and she says, dear, dinner is ready, She's telling me, I would like your company at the dinner table as soon as you can get here. And when I respond, well, just a minute, dear. Well, she's learned that just a minute is the period between 60 seconds and half of a sporting event. <laughs> I thought she should know that the term one more play was progressive. When she yells at me, dinner is getting cold, that means I'm getting hot. And when I respond, can I eat it in front of the TV? What I'm saying is the game is more important than your stinking dinner. 
That's how she perceives it. And when she yells, okay, that means, okay, this means war. <laughs> so I've learned these things. It's taken me 39 years, and I've gotten my bumps and bruises, but I've learned these things. Actions speak so much louder than words. And so when she tells me that dinner's ready, I've come to understand that she has poured herself, a little bit of herself, into that dinner. She's considered the things that we have. She's considered things that I like and what would be pleasing to me. She's considered the practicality of it. She's considered that this particular dinner is well served hot because she has put a lot of work and effort, and so she wants me to enjoy that dinner at its zenith, at its best. And it's the same thing with me. I don't like building something or making something and have somebody just discard it or, or, or just hem-haw it. You want somebody to look at it and be impressed, whatever it might be. Even today, when I build something out of wood, I always think, I wonder what my dad, my dad's been dead for 20 years, but I always think, I wonder what my dad would say. I wonder if this would make my father proud. You know, we, we want to make our father in heaven proud, but there's a dynamic there that is God-ordained. We also want to, we want to impress the one who has raised us. We want to impress the one who has brought us, how, how God, the one God used to bring us into this world. And so how are your actions and deeds? How's hypocrisy playing out in your life or is it playing out in your life? The things that you say, are they the things that you do? The Lord was considerate of this concept in Matthew chapter 21, verses 28 through 32. Jesus said, but what do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go, work today in my vineyard. He answered and said, I will not. But afterwards he regretted it and went. Then he came to the second and said, Likewise, and he answered, the son answered and said, I go, sir, but he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? And they said to him, The first. And Jesus said to them, And surely I say to you that tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. Now, the lesson that he is teaching is, is that those who seem so holy actually weren't, and those who didn't seem so holy actually were. It's the bottom line is, is are you obedient to God according to the commands of God? Are you living up to the things that you say or the, the, the image that that you project, and how much more so in Christianity as I call myself a child of God. It was a evening. My daughter used to be a cheerleader 10, 15 years ago. We were at another property, and there was a particular man, I won't bring his name, used to attend our church back then who struggled with a lot of things. I was sitting next to this friend of mine who goes to a different church, and we were enjoying the basketball game, and he turned to me and said, hey, I met somebody from your church. And I go, oh yeah, who was it? He goes, well, I don't really remember his name, but, oh no, he did remember his name. He told me the person's name, and I thought, oh. And he goes, yeah, I, I was over at this particular store. I had bought what I was buying. I was going back to my car, and he approached me and wanted to borrow some money. And I was thinking about giving it to him, but I noticed he was drunk. And, and I, I had a desire, and this guy was always sharing the Lord, and so I had a desire to share the Lord with him, so I started doing it, and he says, oh, I go to church, I go to Calvary Chapel, Ontario. And I was just thinking, oh, no. The things that we say, the things that we do, as we present ourselves as born-again believers, we have a responsibility before the Lord. 
And God wants you to have an assurance that you can boldly say that I am of the Lord, that I can boldly do the things that he has called and commanded me to do, that I can love him with all of my heart, with all of my soul, and all of my might, that I can truly keep his commandments and die to myself. Why am I dying to myself? Because Jesus first died for me, and he's brought me into the kingdom of heaven, and I'll live and reign with him for all of eternity. And so if I have a surety of my salvation, I don't have a problem giving up my life in this life, because... If this is all there is, it, it, was just a, it was all just a big lie and such a travesty. But we have so much more in store for us. And so it's not a big deal for me to give up, for us to give up that which we're going to lose anyway. And then as far as loving one another, well, before I was saved, I, I loved me with all of my heart, with all of my soul, and with all of my might. Didn't do so well in that one. But now... I can come to church, and I've got a group of people who are loving me sacrificially. I enter into that as well, and so we have a group of people that cares for one of us, that desires to see us grow and to see us flourish and achieve victory in our Christian lives. And as we come together in this manner, it's just a blessing. Again, we just had a picture of that on the video, of the people who are being born again. And you see, you know, you heard one voice. You know how on a lot of comedy shows they'll have the laugh track? You know what I mean, right? Well, here we had Birdie. She was the encouraging, yay! You know, of everybody who, she must have been right next to the phone that was taking the picture. But anyway, it was a good thing. Jesus wants the church to be assured of their salvation because the more certain that we are of a cause, the stronger our stance will be. I'm an American. I love America and I love this nation and it breaks my heart to see what's going, going on in it. But because I am an American, I love it, I'll stand for it, and I'll protect it if it becomes necessary. Why? Because I'm assured that I'm an American. And I want this nation to be all that it can be. If I was of any other nation, I pray that I would have the same desire for that as well. But this is where God placed me, and I want to flourish in that way. God has placed me in the church. He's further than that, into his family. I want to have that assurance so that as much as depends upon me, the church will be all that it could possibly be. Verse 19 again, And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. The person who knows that he is saved, his heart has this assurance before God. And so as we stand before God, as he examines us, our conscience will be assured. So what does assure mean? Assure means to be fully persuaded, not talked into, but come examining the facts, realizing that there's going to be an element of a leap of faith, but taking that leap of faith and coming in to the realization of the truth of the scriptures. It's to be persuaded, it's to be set at rest, and to be tranquil because of that. And so because I've come to realize that the truths of the gospel are truths that God has given to me, I have found an element of peace and an element of comfort in that regardless of the times. Peace, peace is what the world so desires and searches for, but peace is the only thing that will ever come. The only way peace will ever come is through a right relationship with Jesus Christ. Verses 20 through 21. 
For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence towards God. And so one view on on, on verse 20 is, is the heart of God is able to overcome the human heart. He knows the good of man and his grace and mercy will overcome any convictions that we have in our heart. But I don't really see that. I see that as a great deception because it's based upon the goodness of man and there is no good within man. What I see here and what he's talking about here is, is that, well, if we have this confidence, look at verse 21 first. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have a confidence towards God. Pastor Mike, I know how I am and I've been condemned. I condemn myself almost daily. Well, guess what? Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. There's going to be conviction, but there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. As God has brought you into the family, condemnation is just a lie from the devil. And it's just that which we maybe even use in our own lives, but it ends up just weighting us down. God wants you to have peace because your sins have been dealt with, you have been set free, and if the Son has set you free, you will be free indeed or free for sure. Verse 20, if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. If your heart condemns you, now this is an actual condemnation. So the idea is, how could your heart condemn you? Well, this person's not a believer. And he knows he's not a believer. He knows that he's not really loving God. He understands that he plays the hypocrite and doesn't practice righteousness. He knows that he has absolutely no love for those people at that church. And his heart condemns him because of that. And he says here, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. The the, the language points towards... If your heart condemns you, God's wise to it as well. Don't think that you're fooling God. You can't fool God. God, read Psalm 139. It speaks of the the magnitude of who God is. It, It speaks of the depths to which he knows us and understands us. If your heart condemns you, God certainly knows. The Thayer's lexicon defines the Greek word for heart as our conscience. Your conscience is your ear for the Holy Spirit. And God knows by experience that such a person is not saved and will never have any peace apart from a relationship with God. And so, does your conscience condemn you? Is there always that black cloud? I go to church. I'll read the Bible kind of once in a while. I'll try and do good things. You know, the guy on the side of the freeway with the sign, I'll flip him some money every once in a while. But I always have this black cloud of unsurety over me. God wants to take that away. But first of all, you've got to be willing to give all to him. And as I pointed out before, the, the tabernacle out in the wilderness, in order to see the beauty of the tabernacle, you need to enter in. It looks very plain on the outside, but you have to enter in. In order to understand the beauty and the peace that comes from a relationship with Jesus Christ, you need to enter in. Now, do we enter in just to find peace? No, no. Because that's not entering in. You enter in through faith. But if you enter in through faith, then you'll find the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. This is a peace that somebody like me could be forgiven of their sins. This is a peace that you have even though things may be falling down around you. I've heard it said before, come to Jesus and all your problems will go away. They're not going to go away. They're still going to be there. But they're just not going to matter to the same degree that they mattered before. 
take the worst case scenario, you get the worst news that somebody can get, you're going to die. But you can still have the peace of God that surpasses understanding with the knowledge that Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us. And where he is, we will be there one day also to have that confidence. I've seen that, conf- I've seen that confidence in action when our sister Donna just recently passed away. Now, I was there when she got the news. Oh, well, absent from the body, present with the Lord. Now, it was still hard, don't get me wrong, but I just saw the peace that she had. And man, the world, the world has despair at the point of death, but God has given us peace in that it's an intimate passing from this world into the next world or into his presence. Verse 22, and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. We're in the same paragraph, so we're in the same context. And here John is going to tie together love, assurance of salvation, and doing what is pleasing to God with prayer. The understanding that as I'm right in the sight of God, not perfect in the sight of God, but as I'm right in the sight of God, God hears my prayers. And and, and so, Pastor Mike, I, I prayed for the yacht, I prayed for the mansion, I prayed for the million, and I've gotten neither. Well, you're probably not praying according to his will. Matter of fact, the yacht, the mansion, and the million would probably be detrimental to your spiritual life. So God has made the determination not to give you those things. When you're right with God, then you pray according to his will. When you're praying according to the will of God, how could you not see that prayer be answered? Think about that. God Almighty, his will, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You're praying according to the will of God. And as you do that, you are going, in his due time, see that come to pass. God wants you to see these things come to pass. And so Christ, Christ has died for us that we would be saved. Christ has died for us that we would grow in the knowledge of him. And Christ has died for us that we, we in turn, would serve him. And that we would do all of these things boldly in our Christian life. That we would have a confidence. That we would move forward in the face of adversity. Because again, things are going to get worse. The opposition is going to grow stronger and uglier. Remember King David as he was on that hill? All of Israel was petrified because there was a nine-foot giant down there. But David didn't see a nine-foot giant. What he saw was, was a God who was able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that he could ever ask or think. He knew he was going down there, not according to his own power, a slingshot, or even rocks. He was going down there in the power of the living God. He faced that giant, and as he faced that giant, even the giant scoffed at him. Who's this dead dog that stands before me? But David understood that he stood there in the power of the living God, and God prevails because that's what God does for people or with people who have faith in him. Verse 23, and this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. Turn over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. We're going to close from there, just over to the left a bit. Just to the left of the Timothys is the Thessalonians. Apostle Paul writing to the church at Thessalonica.
So again, what Paul's doing is he's observing. He's not there, but he's observing this church through the things that he has heard. He says in verse 2, We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patient of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but in power. It was the power of God that saved us, and it's the power of God that works in us and through us. And in the Holy Spirit, the Spirit that was given as a guarantee, and in much assurance, again, For the born-again believer, there's a great deal of assurance of the reality of their salvation, as you know what kind of men we were amongst you for your sake. And so those things were built upon the example that was set by others. So he speaks of their work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope. What are these things? Well, they turn to God from idols. This is in verse 9 and 10. They turn to God from idols, they serve the living and true God, and they are actively waiting for his Son. Why? Because they have a surety. Your surety will be revealed through your reality as you have that knowledge of truly God dwelling inside of you. And you may be thinking, well, me? How could that be me? That's just me. Well, that's the kind of people that God inhabits. It's the humble it's the meek. It's the people that he's able to be glorified, not by power nor by might, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. And God has done great things through common people. Next time you read through the Bible, look at the people that God used. They were inept, they were sinners, and they were imperfect. But God inhabited them, God enabled them, and God used them even continues to use their testimony this day, it's going to be your testimony of the reality of God in you that will continue to minister even as you leave this planet. And what amazing thing that that is, that God would use any one of us or all of us in that capacity for his glory. Father, once again, we just thank you, God, for your goodness and your graciousness that uses, again, common people, Lord, just everyday people in everyday situations. And so, Lord, I just pray that we would not sell you short through our lives. And so, Father, first of all, if there's anybody here whose conscience has condemned them, Lord, I pray that they, number one, would know that if they truly are condemned, if they truly do not have a relationship with God, God's well aware of that. He's given you even this message today. You need to get right with him. And we get right with him, first of all, with the knowledge that we're sinners. Secondly, that we would repent of our sins, our sinful nature. And that, thirdly, we would come to him and we would just ask Christ into our heart. This is a personal thing that God does within your life. But then, fourthly, that personal thing that he has done within you will be expressed through you. And so, Father, I pray, if there's anybody here right now who's yet to receive you as Lord and Savior, I pray that they would submit their lives to you. Father, I pray for the born-again believer, Lord, and pray for the person that maybe has been convicted 
of living a life that is apart from these proofs that we've been given, that, Lord, they would come back into living these things. They would come back into exemplifying these things. Father, I pray with all of us that are sitting here, all of us, Lord, who have hearing of this message now, that, Father, we would make the necessary changes in our lives and that we would glorify you through them. And so, Father, you so desire to do a work in the church. You so desire to do a work in this church. But again, you do that for working outside of the church as well. And so, Father, I just simply pray that we would be found faithful in all that you have called us to do, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Will you stand, please? If you want to know more about a relationship with Jesus,